0: My darlings, we've been looking at the bells that still can ring, uh, echoing uh, Leonard Cohen's marvellous um, song, Anthem. There's a crack, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And then later on, he talks about the bells, ring the bells that still can ring. And what we've been looking at over the past four weeks together is what parts of the Christian tradition, what parts of our Christian lives Uh, still have resonance, not just for us, but perhaps for other people and for a wider audience, uh, and which parts um, no longer ring, no longer have resonance. And that's not to say that they didn't ring with clarity and with importance in centuries past, uh, decades past, or even years past. And for some of us, um, some of the bells that rang maybe only a few months ago, we're still ringing loud and clear in our ears but now they're growing a little bit fainter or they're not quite working one of the things i think that i, I took out of this blooming covid thing which i'm pretty sure i had in the the first iteration of it almost two years ago was tinnitus um, so i would never had that and for those who aren't aware tinnitus, tinnitus is a constant sort of ringing Uh, in one's ears and mine comes and goes and it's ringing like crazy in my left ear at the minute Uh, so ring the (laughs) bells that still can ring isn't perhaps the best of titles uh, for this particular series given uh, the ringing that's going on in my ear at the moment so i want to do a little recap because those of you who have been good enough and kind enough to walk this particular journey over the past few weeks with me uh, will have realized that it's been a cumulative experience um, while each week almost is a standalone, it's not really. Uh, and you may recall that we began with looking at the scriptures and, and saying, uh, maybe the idea of the Bible doesn't ring with us anymore, but perhaps the idea of the scriptures, this collection. Uh, of ancient wisdom writings and writings of people's experiences and their understandings and their explorations, alongside other writings of that period and subsequently, perhaps they still have resonance, they're still ringing for us. And as we went through the subsequent weeks, I think uh, it's been underlined in my own mind that that's precisely the right place to begin. Because very often when we've discussed either moving from dogma to experience, moving from God with a capital G uh, to the divine or this week moving from atonement to love, we very often find ourselves going back and actually discussing or wrestling with some scriptures. Uh, And it may be that some of us um, hold less strongly and tightly to the bible than we used to and we grab the scriptures with greater freedom and alacrity uh, than some other people do and that's fine because everyone has got to be where they are but increasingly I am am convinced that uh, it's looking at that issue of authority the the authority of the scriptures or the authority of our tradition or our teaching that that has been given to us down through uh, the decades of our lives that, if you like, I think, is, is the real bell that has to be tested. Uh, and for me, and for uh, many people, the bell of the authority of Scripture, as in the authority of the Bible, uh, churches claiming to be Bible-based or Bible-believing, uh, that's a bell that doesn't ring uh, anymore. It, it rang once very loudly in my life. It still rings in many churches. But the bell of the dynamic, changing, altering, questioning and questionable scriptures is a bell that has great resonance for me. And from that, uh, we then were looking at a number of other things. Last week, we were looking at the concept of, of God. Uh, and I, I was trying to suggest that the popular Christian theistic way of looking at God, uh, not necessarily. Um, uh, the the uh, what's the word i'm looking for not popular theism but um, classical theism thank you steve uh, it's not so much that classical theism uh, may be questionable because it's so profound and deep i don't know if anyone quite understands what it is anyway but popular theism that has this sort of super personal god god is a, a a sort of bigger version of us who intervenes and answers prayers and creates actively and all of that, I was suggesting uh, that we can move beyond that to the idea of God being the highest expression of reality that exists. And highest expression of reality that exists is a nice little anagram here, H-E-R-E. So we can always say God is here, which is quite a nice little thing to say if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, But what is or what might be the highest expression of reality that exists? Well, at the very least, it is the totality of everything. And that's not terribly far away from classical theism as it happens, but a long way away from popular theism. The highest expression of reality that exists perhaps is the totality of absolutely everything and then beyond that. I remember a few years ago when I was doing a different series of talks here, we were looking at some modern theories of science, not just to do with evolution, but cosmology and so on. And we looked at the idea of emergence. And emergence simply is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the classical example that people give all the time is, you know, you take hydrogen Uh, Atoms and you take oxygen atoms, and there's nothing in either hydrogen atoms or oxygen atoms that would suggest that when you bung them together, you end up with water. Nothing. Nothing to suggest that what you end up will be something that's wet to touch, or if it drops below a certain temperature, uh, it becomes ice. Or if it's boiled to a certain temperature, it becomes steam. There is nothing in hydrogen atoms, nothing in oxygen atoms that would suggest when you bring them together, something beyond hydrogen and oxygen will emerge. Indeed, something beyond H2O. Because you might be able to work out from, you know, the covalences or whatever it might be, or bonds or electrons, that you'd end up with H2O. But there's nothing to suggest that H2O would be what we call water. So the idea of God being not only the totality of everything, but then beyond that, whether it's in a type of emergence, uh, and we've got to be careful when we speak in these big, big, big terms, that we don't think in in terms of time being linear. Uh, So if we speak of God Uh, being the totality of everything and then the emergence of whatever is beyond that it doesn't mean that you know 10 minutes ago God was less than God is now Uh, because you know a lot of cosmologists and modern physicists will say uh, that our understanding of time going from past to present to future is our own little illusion that's just the way we experience time but all of time is present all the time All of space is present all the time. All of the universe is present all the time. So what we call the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang, uh, and there's some very exciting stuff happening with the launching of a new telescope to look back into the very beginnings of the universe from our understanding of it uh, that I was reading about earlier on today, and that will give us a great understanding of what happened about 15 or so billion years ago in our time scale, but in Uh, theoretical physics and and cosmology, um, the Big Bang wasn't in the past. Uh, If there is what we might term an end of the universe at some time in the future, that isn't happening in the future. It's a crazy way to think uh, for us mere mortals, but if you've got the brain the size of Einstein or people who have even bigger brains, uh, they talk about a thing called the block universe, which means that everything that is, is. You can't even say it is all the time because that's going back to our past, present, future. Everything that is, is. So the idea of God being uh, emergent from everything that is doesn't mean to say God started off as a tiny wee speck at the big bang and is going to end up a big universe-sized thing at some time in the future. Um, the idea of emergence is that whatever is, when it combines, it, it goes beyond what it is to something even greater. And if we take into uh, our minds quite seriously the idea that our universe is quite probably only one universe among many, 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 many other uh, universes. when people talk about the multiverse, which either could be an infinite number of parallel universes uh, or an almost infinite number of universes that have just developed it. So that we used to think, you know, centuries ago that uh, the Earth was the center of everything. And then we thought the solar system was. And then we thought the galaxy was. Uh, and then we realized, gosh, there are 100,000 uh, billion, 100, billion galaxies or whatever it is. I can't remember the, the, the number because they keep growing as we discover more of them. There may well be that number of universes. So how big is God? How big is God if God is that and beyond? It, it, it's, a, it's an astounding thought. I think, an utterly astounding thought. And that's uh, what I was saying last week at the, uh, at the, at the end, that my difficulty with you know, standard liberal Protestant theology is that you always end up with a God that is less than. The God of fundamentalism uh, or evangelicalism or pietistic Catholicism. Um, and liberal Protestantism can sort of, you know, get very snooty and say, "Well, imagine those poor people there who believe in, you know, literal Adam and Eve and seven days creation, or they believe that in, in the Eucharist, if they're Roman Catholic or whatever, this is the actual body of Christ." They get a bit snooty, but they end up with something that is less than that, which seems to me to be a step entirely in the wrong direction. And we should be ending up with something that is more than that, something that is beyond. And that, Steve was wearing, introduced my little term, metatheism, beyond theism. I am not an atheist. I am not a theist. I'm a metatheist beyond the concept of theism. And I think that's something that we can stretch our minds into forever. And I think that's something we will actually stretch our minds and beings into forever. An incredible concept of God. Uh, And if we think of that then, uh, we went on last week to talk briefly, or to some extent, about the idea of the incarnation. Uh, And incarnation is another one of those rather clumsy terms. And just as the divines way back centuries ago, when they're talking about God, the idea of the concept of Trinity worked for them and so on. And that's fine, even though their formulations, I think, are very difficult to understand, if not impossible. When it came to people talking about Jesus and the idea of Jesus being the incarnate, Um, Son of God, and Son of God doesn't mean Son of God, it means second person of the Trinity. What does Trinity mean? Well, you go back to that very strange understanding of Trinity that nobody quite understands, and incarnation then becomes a very difficult thing. How can somebody be entirely God and entirely human at the same time, be one person but have two distinct natures that don't interact with each other, and so on. Very difficult. But if instead of talking of incarnations, which is a bit of a clumsy word, we can use a similar word that means the same thing but is closer to our vocabulary if we talk about embodiment or if we talk about expression. And we have in our minds the idea that if God is this be, the totality of everything and beyond, um, then the idea of Jesus being an embodiment of that, Jesus being an expression of that, uh, seems to me to make entire sense. It might even make entire sense to say that within our history and our understanding of history, Jesus is the embodiment, Jesus is the expression of the meta-theistic God that we're talking about. But I think the really brilliant and lovely thing about all of this is so are you and so am I, so are we. We are all. We are all in the same position as Jesus was. We are all within the totality of everything. You can't be outside the totality of everything, because if you were, then the totality of everything wouldn't be the totality of everything. So we are all inside the totality of everything and beyond. We are all inside within God. And it seems to me to be entirely possible uh, that each one of us, in that sense is a localized expression of the totality of everything. We are a localized expression of God. Anybody speak Irish here in the room? Any any native Irish speakers? I'm relieved because I've tried to learn Irish umpteen times and failed each time, not least because... In a country the size of Ireland with a population the size of ours, there are three distinct dialects in in, in Irish, and people fight as only Irish people can over who has the right pronunciation and the right spelling. And any time I've tried to learn my little bit uh, of Ulster Irish, which turned out not to be Donegal Irish, but Tyrone Irish, and then I've wandered into the Leitrim, which is a beautiful place, or down to Dublin, which is less beautiful, but nonetheless still in Ireland. And I've tried out my Irish people would always say, that's not how you say that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going on a Kajemer tattoo, and they go, No, you don't put it, you don't say it like that. Uh, anyway, uh, but there's a nice little thing in Irish, which I'm sure many, many languages have. But the Irish language has two ways of saying is, two forms of the verb to be. Uh, one is is, uh, which tells you what you are, and the other is ta which tells you what you are becoming, or what you are like. So to be a little bit sexist for a moment, because I can't think of a, a, just a, another way of um, putting this forward as an illustration. In Irish, if I was saying, uh, I am a man, I would use is. Uh, if I was saying, I am manly, I am man-like, I am developing into a man, I would use ta. Uh, And I want to suggest that that's a really useful way of looking at us and the incarnation. Uh, We are within the totality of God. We are localized expressions of everything that is, because if we're not a localized expression of everything that is, then everything that is is not in us, and is not present and localized in us. And then it wouldn't be the totality of everything and beyond again either. So we could say, is an incarnation. (laughs) But we could say that the job of our lives is ta, is to become like, is to become an expression of that, a real uh, expression of that. Uh, And that, I think, is really what our destiny is. I think that's what being a human being is all about. And I think that has got then profound things to say with regard to our understanding of salvation and our understanding of the atonement. So I can see people itching. Roy's having to sit on his hands because he wants to ask 27,000 questions there. But we've been told not to do that because it ruins the podcast. I'm ruining the podcast all on my own, Roy, without any help of interjections. So don't you worry about it. Uh, so I'm going to suggest that, that where I'm, what I've hinted at and where I will end up th- this evening with regard to atonement and love and salvation is very different from uh, popular um, Christian tradition. Uh, and that's probably true in the Roman Catholic tradition and the uh, Protestant and Pentecostal traditions, maybe less so in some of the Orthodox Church traditions, but that's not a tradition of the Christian Church that I know enough about to, re- to, to be able to talk about But when we talk about salvation in the Christian tradition, a number of themes are usually uh, immediately brought to the fore. One of them is sacrifice. Uh, Jesus on the cross was, or still is, a sacrifice. And that is almost always taken to understand as Jesus is a sacrifice to God. That in some way, Jesus is offering his life to God. And then, in what way is that an offering of himself to God becomes further complicated as we see, uh, when it, it's understood that Jesus is offering his life as a sacrifice to God uh, on our behalf. And then it's complicated further by saying Jesus is offering himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf in order to pay a punishment or a penalty or or whatever uh, that we should have been paying ourselves. But we'll get on to that uh, in a little while. And of course, there is, especially within Paul's teaching, a lot of talk about sacrifice and there's a lot of um, imagery of sacrifice uh, throughout the New Testament. And it would be wrong, I think for anyone to say that, that that must be completely wrong, that Jesus in no sense could be understood as a sacrifice. But there's a cart and horse and, and, and 17 uh, marching bands driven between the idea of Jesus being a sacrifice and Jesus being a sacrifice as it's understood um, by you know, the theories of penal substitution that will come along, the, the, the standard, either Catholic or, or evangelical understanding, of the sacrifice of Jesus. I think it's entirely to say, uh, right to say that Jesus uh, offered himself as a sacrifice to God in the sense that he was not going to act in a way that wasn't full of integrity, that he was going to stand before God And rather than give way to the powers that were controlling his circumstances, whether those be um, the Jewish ruling powers or the Roman ruling powers or the people who were trying to strike against him, uh, rather than compromise his understanding and his loyalty to God, uh, he would sacrifice his life. And in that sense, I think it's reasonable to say, in one way Jesus was giving himself as a sacrifice to God. Just the way in which we can say someone you know, gave their life as a sacrifice to a cause. And that makes entire sense. I think it also makes uh, entire sense to say that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for us. In much the same way as in armed conflict. Uh, I, I'm a student of and I love uh, history. And one of my first loves in history was First World War history. Uh, and there are many stories um, one of them a young Belfast man Billy McFancy was his name I can't remember uh, of of cuff uh, who sacrificed himself for his comrades by jumping on a grenade in a trench so that he died for them so that they didn't die and I think it makes entire sense to think of Jesus going to the cross in that sense as a sacrifice for us uh, in order to do something for us he was prepared to go to the cross but that's a million miles away uh, from using the term sacrifice in the way that perhaps it's more traditionally understood the term redemption is often used uh, and the whole idea of redemption of course is you know winning something back Um, so you know you you can it's almost like a pawn shop you know where you can redeem something that you've Uh, given in you've got a little bit of money for it and you come back and you pay the full price and and so on Uh, and there certainly is an echo of the idea of a price being paid Uh, but what is it that jesus might redeem us from redemption is like being rescued and in the very early church the idea was and this was the big understanding of the atonement for the first few centuries was that jesus was rescuing us from satan and there's a rather complex drama in, enacted, you know, Christus Victor, which was the idea that um, God and the devil made a deal. It's almost like one of those awful songs about God and the devil playing cards, one of those country and western songs uh, for somebody's soul or whatever. But it was almost like that idea that, you know, God and the devil were, were wrestling for the souls of, of human beings, um, and the devil said, all right, instead of all these human beings, I will take the soul of your son. Uh, not knowing that uh, he would not be able to hold on to it, that the soul of Jesus would be too strong and, and burst out of hell and burst out of captivity uh, and came forward into new life and the resurrection. And the devil had to skulk away going, darn it, uh, God managed to uh, fool me in that one. Uh, now, that was the original understanding and the original idea uh, of redemption. I don't think very many people hold on to that anymore. But it's a lovely imagery. It's a lovely... I mean, it's a great picture of us being rescued from evil. And, of course, that, that's the central picture that C.S. Lewis uses uh, in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe with Aslan. Uh, at least, uh, probably stronger even than the idea of um, some sort of penal substitution... So the imagery of us being rescued is great, but I don't think from some sort of metaphysical devil. But if we talk about Jesus rescuing us from wickedness, from evil, but I think ultimately from ourselves and from the baser things within us, then I think the talk of redemption is still entirely appropriate, but it doesn't have to be used or understood traditionally. So sacrifice, redemption are great things, But I don't think because they're in the scriptures and because they're in traditional Christianity that we have to understand them the way in which perhaps we've been taught to understand them. Uh, Other big theories that that have um, been used in terms of understanding the atonement is the idea uh, of Jesus being an example. And I think, you know, we're closer perhaps to where we want to go with this and this is where liberal protestantism can say that, liberal protestantism would go the idea that jesus is a great moral example of how to live one's life uh, and i think that's true but that's another example i think of liberal protestantism uh, ending up with something less than because okay a, a great example is good it's good to have a great example but you know, I'm not too sure too many people would die for somebody who was a great example. We need something more than that. So I think the idea of Jesus not only being a great example, but Jesus being a leader, and that's the core understanding, I think, of Jesus being a uh, saviour, uh, makes more sense. Uh, Jesus is not just an example for people, but he actively leads people by his example and by his continuing presence into new territory, into wholeness, into salvation. And I would certainly much rather follow a leader than an example. I would rather follow someone who is dynamically inspiring me and someone with whom, within the greater totality of everything and beyond, I know I am organically connected to and spiritually connected with And in a way that I never understand, I am one with. That's so much more dynamic and so much more powerful than a mere example. And so I think when we talk about Jesus being leader, uh, Jesus being Lord, that's another, uh, Lord is maybe a word that has got some rather hierarchical connotations. Uh, But if we take Lord as someone to whom we owe our allegiance, someone that we will follow through thick and thin, then I think we're getting closer To an understanding without necessarily, while using the language without necessarily buying into everything that we were given before. And then somehow, all of that got woven together in the Middle Ages. And not until the Middle Ages, uh, into this idea of substitution. Uh, And initially in the Middle Ages, the idea was, uh, Jesus was a, a substitute for us. Um, in terms of giving back to God what we had stolen from God. And in the Middle Ages, the idea was that human beings were made to honour God. That's our purpose. God made us deliberately so that we would honour him and worship him and give him his due. And I think we said a few weeks ago, I think that's a rather strange understanding of God. You know, Why would you do that? Uh, I've got four wonderful, wonderful children. uh, And I was involved in the making of all of them, I'm glad to say. Uh, But either before, after, or during the making of them, I was not thinking, yes, now I will have little people to honor me. That's why I'm having them. (laughs) So it seems rather strange to me, that concept that God would create human beings so that uh, we would owe him a debt of honor. But it made sense in the Middle Ages, when you think of that whole Middle Ages world of of hierarchies and serfdom and lords and uh, kings and barons and all the rest of it. It made sense in that structured society, that sort of feudal system. Uh, And some of the great thinkers around the Middle Ages said, oh, that's what the death of Jesus was all about. Um, We had dishonored God. But by living a life of obedience and dying on the cross, uh, Jesus was honouring God supremely. So his honour could take the place of our dishonour. Now you can sort of see there's some good thoughts and ideas in that, in that Jesus was supremely honouring of God and good. But the idea of a a swap uh, is rather strange, and I don't think it lands with the way we think today. If it lands with some people still, that's fine. And then to, towards the time of the Reformation, that got, ch- got changed again from the idea of satisfaction. So those of you who have been involved in the Church of Ireland or the Anglican churches will still know in the communion service about Jesus' sacrifice being a satisfaction. That word is still used there. Uh, but going into the Reformation, that changed to the idea of not so much that we owed God honour that had been taken from him and Jesus substituted that amount of honour. It was a rather darker image that um, God had to punish us. Uh, We really uh, owed it to God and to ourselves to be punished for our sin. And this time it wasn't that Jesus in his life and death brought supreme honour to God and we sort of grabbed hold of Jesus' coattails and were swung into heaven on the back of them, which isn't Again, that's not a bad image, uh, but the basis of the thought is a bit strange. This time it was, we all deserve to be uh, punished, and we would be punished eternally through death. Uh, And sadly, it wasn't just death, but it was a bit of a tingly, fiery, nasty experience of death that went on forever as well. It wasn't oblivion. It was burning in the fires of hell. uh, And that was what every single one of us, uh, that was our due. And we'll see why that uh, that was the case in a moment. Uh, That we were born into that and no complaint, no complaint. That's what should be coming our way. But what Jesus did was he jumped in and all the suffering and the pain that should be ours, that was heaped on him. Now, it's never quite explained to what extent that was the case. Uh, you know, d- you know, did Jesus actually experience fire and uh, all, all of that stuff? Whatever, whatever our punishment was, um, then Jesus experienced that punishment and that was substituted for us. And that that does I think there's a lot of questions there. Uh, and the questions really run to the heart of the character and the nature of God. Uh, in what sense could any supreme being that is love think along those lines? Now maybe a supreme being that is supreme and entirely loving, does think along those lines. But if that's the case, I can find no point of contact with it. I would not. I, I'm rubbish at To be honest, when my kids were growing up, I was rubbish at punishing them or disciplining them or whatever. I was a real walkover. And they haven't turned out too badly, I'm glad, glad to say. Uh, I was definitely of, of the opinion that, that loving them a lot... Uh, and running with them a lot and playing with them a lot was going to produce most likely a better end result than whacking them uh, and putting them in naughty steps and telling them how rubbish they were and be thankful for it because this is really going to make you into a better man or a better young lady or whatever. I was never into that, I'm glad to say. Um, But I cannot conceive that that's the way God could think. I cannot conceive that God would not Experience, if we want to use that met, uh, metaphorical term, uh, sort of anthropomorphic term, that God could ever think uh, that He was not diminished completely and wholly by something that someone that He had fashioned who was screaming in eternal torment. I just, I, it doesn't work for me at all not in the sense that I don't like it that's not the point I mean who's going to like it well an awful lot of conservative evangelicals in this country (laughs) seem to quite like it uh, with a lot of the preaching that goes on and uh, some of the old fiery um, Catholic preachers used to like it as well but I don't mean in the sense that I don't like that I mean I cannot conceive at all of how that comes out of a positive image of God And if in any sense we are made in the image of god i cannot consider in any way that i could possibly be more loving or more generous than god could be and i think it's one of those things that when you start off with the wrong basis no matter how good your logic is you're going to end up with wrong conclusions and i think that's what's happened and part of that as we move swiftly on comes from the idea Of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. um, Which really um, says this. uh, That Adam and Eve were born um, in a state of innocence. Not in a state of perfection, but in a state of innocence. Uh, And perhaps had they not sinned, they would have developed into a state of perfection. But they never really got that far, so we don't know... Whether that would be the case or not, Uh, but through their sin of disobedience, uh, instead of being in a state of innocence, they then fell into a state of sin or a state of sinfulness. And maybe so far so good. Now you do have to buy into the idea of Adam and Eve being two literal people uh, who were there at the beginning of the human race. Uh, rather than this being a beautiful story and uh, legend and myth and metaphor of humanity. Uh, Because the next bit of the doctrine of original sin says that then through procreation, was that me? Uh, Through procreation and the uh, physical processes of procreation, uh, through the seed of the man, then that sinfulness was passed on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and so on. Uh, And it it was connected in its original formulation uh, to procreation. And that's how everybody ended up being inherently sinful. Not just apt to do sinful, stupid and wrong things, which is self-evidently correct, but inwardly, Inherently, intrinsically sinful. And that's the idea of original sin. Now, you will no doubt have to be delighted to hear that the Christian church managed to do quite well for 400 years without that doctrine. So it wasn't until St. Augustine, roughly about 400 years, 350, 400 years after Jesus' uh, life, that Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, um, put this together into a specific doctrine in the way that I've outlined. Now it's not that other people didn't sort of hint at it or think along those terms, but he put it together. Now, there are a few things that are strange about this. Um, St Augustine was fixated on sex uh, and the fact that it was a bad, nasty, wicked, evil thing to do. Uh, And he thought it was a bad, nasty, wicked, evil thing to do because before he became a Christian, he loved it a lot. He was very sexually active. And sex was his thing, uh, much to his beloved mother's uh, despair. Uh, He then became a Christian, which, no doubt, uh, was wonderful for him. Uh, It changed his life. It changed his thinking. And i think which wasn't so wonderful for the christian church it changed the thinking and the life of a lot of the christian church as well because he had a brain the size of 17 planets so when you get someone who has had a very sharp conversion and a brain the size of 17 planets who could argue uh, the spots of absolutely everybody else who was trying to work out the whole idea of the story of redemption and god and sin and evil And he had this life that was turned upside down because he himself was terribly promiscuous and had harmed people through his sexual promiscuity and then had been rescued from, oh, sex, that's, of course, of course, that was it. Of course, that's how sin is passed from one generation to another. Uh, And out of that, in ways that, of course, have been refined down through the centuries, came the doctrine of original sin. We are are all intrinsically, inherently evil and wicked. And it's for that reason that we deserve to be punished. Because if somebody makes a mistake, you might say, well, they need to be corrected, but not necessarily punished. Okay, the correction might be painful, but it's correction, it's not punishment. But if something is inherently intrinsically wicked, evil, wrong in the very essence of its being, then that has to be pushed away from God. It has to be burnt out of people. They deserve to be punished. They're like the orcs in Lord of the Rings. Or, in my mind, being a Manchester United fan like Manchester City or Liverpool. There is no good in them. They are wicked, evil things that deserve to be screamed and shouted against. And out of that understanding that we are intrinsically evil came various theories and doctrines of salvation uh, such as the satisfaction theory or the penal substitutionary theory that many of us here in this room would have grown up with. And I want to suggest, what if that's a load of ballyhoo? Which personally I think it is. It it worked for Augustine. And the logic of it is, is great. But as I said before, if you start off with the wrong premises, no matter how good your logic is, you end up with the wrong conclusions. Why should you believe that? Why should anyone believe the doctrine of original sin. And yet it is one of the fixed points within uh, certainly Western Christianity that is non-negotiable. I remember in the Church of Theological College, God love them and bless them all, the tutors who were working with me uh, then, the ones I'm thinking of are, are, are dead and gone. I did not have any part in their demise, I hastened to add. Uh, they were lovely people, but I remember discussing uh, with one of them who was a very liberal Protestant guy and lo- lovely man and uh, great crack. But I remember s- saying back then even, uh, but, but what if you know, the original sin thing isn't right? And he's going, well, that's not negotiable. I mean, that's, that's just a given. Just as creation is a given or the crucifixion is a given, original sin is a given fixed point. And if you do take that as your given fixed point, first of all, there was a literal Adam and Eve, and because of their literal sin, and then their literal procreation of other human beings who literally procreated other human beings ad infinitum, uh, every single person is intrinsically evil. Then you end up with a whole set of doctrines around salvation. Uh, frankly, in which the idea of an example or a lead, uh, Jesus being a leader that leads us into uh, the promised land and new territory and new life uh, doesn't quite cut it because... Uh, and I remember when I was a young Christian in the Scripture Union, one of the first uh, meetings that I went to, somebody was talking about the cross, some preacher I've, I may have told you this before, and I remember saying, but, but why did Jesus have to die? And he's going, well, he had to die for your sins. Yeah, but why did he have to die? Uh, And I I, I never got an answer because it was just a given thing that Jesus had to die for my sins in the sense of taking my sins away and, and, and so on. And what if those things are not given? What if we have the freedom and the liberty to go, I'm going to think this through again. And we think our way back to the idea of original sin and we say, well, No, I don't think there was a literal Adam and a literal Eve. I don't think there was a literal Garden of Eden. I don't even think there there was a whole dose of human beings, which is one sort of version of this, a whole dose of human beings running around as like Neanderthals or whatever. And then God chose two of them out to make them spiritually into Homo sapiens. You know, this is a bit of a wobbly theory to begin with, but it's seriously put by some people. Uh, and then they became the representatives of the... Human. No, I don't. why should I believe that? The whole story of Adam and Eve is a wonderful story, understood as a story. You know, Disney should make a new uh, film of it, because it's brilliant. Well, if they did it about the Prince of Egypt... They could do it about the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's a great story, as a story that talks about the mystery of sinfulness and the fracturing of human relationships and the idea of what God would want for us and the fact that we turn it down. It's full of rich meaning. I love this story. But we make it into literal history, and then out of that literal history, we formulate very set doctrines that end up with the idea, Steve, that you are intrinsically, um, incorrigibly, fixably evil. Go to <laughs> you're, you're a Liverpool fan? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, don't take an interest in football now and become a Liverpool fan, for goodness sake. Talk about the dark side. But uh, How, at some point, I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, how did we end up here? And if we've ended up here, maybe somewhere along the road, we've taken a wrong turn. And maybe that wrong turn was very, very early on. But for lots of people, it works. That's still where they are. Um, But I'm suggesting to you that isn't where you have to be. And you shouldn't feel under any compulsion uh, or feel any guilt or feel in some way that you are a second rate. Anything if you go. No. St Augustine was a brilliant brilliant man. But I believe he was brilliantly wrong. Now you well, Who are you to say that St Augustine was wrong? Well I'm Brendan McCarthy. Who else can I be? But I'm certainly not going to say. Because. Somebody else said this had to be so. I must agree with him. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's right. But I can only believe in all honesty and in all integrity or with all integrity what I honestly believe. And I see no compulsion on the basis of tradition or history or authority or a mountain of subsequent tomes of theology that I have to agree with something that frankly I think it's brought us to a place that is completely untenable. So what's the alternative? Well, there are lots and lots of alternatives. Mike has his alternative. Steve has his alternative. Roy has his alternative and so on. Uh, But I want to put some broad stroke alternative things that might be useful. And if they are, that's wonderful. And if they're not useful, well, there, there we go. I want to say instead of being intrinsically wicked, evil, good only for burning in hell, We're works in progress. We are flawed people. Flawed human beings. We're flawed. We're broken. But we have infinite potential. I do have to say I'm not a great fan of of, of this idea that says... um, You know, God made you just as you are. You're absolutely splendid just as you are. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Well, I know that's not true. I mean, I've got a very high opinion of myself, but it's not so high that I think that I'm absolutely wonderful, absolutely splendid, and that I should accept myself just as I am in the sense of, that's it, I'm the finished article. Clearly not. Those who have known me over a number of decades would know that that is most certainly the case. I'd like to think I've stepped forward a few inches in my development towards becoming whatever the finished article will be, but I'm not. And I think, sadly, in a reaction to this message that you are evil and wicked and intrinsically terrible, some folk feel the need to swing to the other direction and go, no, I'm perfect just as I am. Well, no, you're not. You're neither of those things. I would suggest we really embrace the idea of being flawed, of being broken, of not being what we know we want to be. And actually, um, Jerry, we were talking about Paul earlier and, and did he say some good things and so on. That, that we tussle had in, in Romans where he's going, I want to do this, but I can't do it. And oh, who will rescue me from this muddle of sin and so on. Uh, that was one of his better passages because that is what we're like. But that does not make us intrinsically evil and wicked and good only for burning in the fires of hell uh, unless this strange... Forensic transaction takes place. I want to say that in the understanding of God, who is the totality of everything and beyond, the highest expression of reality that could ever exist, could possibly exist, which goes beyond love, beyond justice, beyond goodness, beyond beauty, but never less than. I'm going to say we don't need to be saved from anything. We do not need to be saved from that God. We do not need to be saved from some other counterbalance that is lurking around the universe trying to drag us um, by the heels into one of those medieval artistic depictions of hell. I want to say that we don't need to be saved from ourselves, although I understand that language used in a certain way can be helpful. What we need is to be made whole. Not being saved from the fires of hell. Not being saved from um, an angry God. How often have you heard that said? Uh, Not being snatched from anything. But we do need to become whole. We do need to be made whole. And I think the way in which that happens is that we move from is to ta. Our whole history from the moment of the beginning in human terms, in terms of linear time, our whole history from the beginning of the universe to the end of everything that ever will be, if we want to think in linear terms, is about, for me, my part in that wonderful pageantry, tapestry play, drama reality of not just me but me and you and everybody else and everything else becoming fully absorbed into infused by cut through in every possible way that we might be sliced becoming in that You know, ta, sense of the word. Becoming. The metatheism, the beyond God that I mentioned earlier. And in that wonderful process, we move from one stage of incompleteness to another stage of incompleteness to another stage of incompleteness if we want to look at it negatively. But if we want to look at it positively, we move from one stage of, almost wholeness to a better stage of almost wholeness until eventually we will arrive at a stage of complete wholeness. When you and I will be indistinguishable from one another, you and I will be indistinguishable from God and yet will not cease to exist because Paul again, Jerry, didn't he say, God would be all in all. And I think that's just a brilliant thing to live for and to look forward to and to understand as salvation. Now, I imagine that all of us in this room have had experiences when we felt uh, we've been closer in the presence of God than we might have been 10 minutes earlier. It can happen in all sorts of places and at different times in our lives. And some of those experiences that I've had certainly have been really pleasant really good I want to go back and get another one but some of them have been painful and I suspect that when my biological life is at an end and the essence of who and what I am which I understand as you know my consciousness which is a very poor watery way of understanding the reality of all that God is, but I suspect that when my consciousness becomes more aware of the God that is beyond, some of that will be, ooh, that's a bit painful. But more of it will be, oh, that's wonderful. And in that sense, I think, it, you know, using traditional language, being in the presence of God is heaven and hell at the same time. Or heaven and purgatory, maybe. I think I can understand all that talk in the scriptures, you know, about things being burnt and uh, burnished and refined as a fire. Because if I stepped into an absolutely overwhelming light, at first it might be searing and blinding before it becomes warm and infusing and something that I want to uh, exult and, and, and rejoice in. So I have no difficulty at all in some of the imagery, Uh, that seems to speak of you know after our biological lives are over that it isn't all just plain sailing in that sense because that's not what life is. My life to this date has been full of painful things and happy things and some of the painful things are the things that I've grown by and uh, when I look back at them at the time I very much would have wanted to have changed them but I look back at them now and I don't because I would be a different person from the person I am now and so on. So beyond our biological lives, there might be a whole mixture of that stuff going on. I have no idea, but we will find out. But I do know this, and it took me a long time to get to this point, Steve. When my dearly beloved wife, as I said you a few weeks ago, said to me, "But aren't you just telling people to be nice? And is that enough to inspire anybody?" Only quite recently. <laughs> uh, did it land in my own heart and my own mind? Uh, no, it's not good enough to get out of, for me to get out of bed with the thought I must be nice to people today. Although I would like to be nice to. I get out of bed now with the thought my job today is to be the incarnation of God. It's to be the Brendan McCarthy incarnation of God. And I'm going to make a real hems and a mess of it for most of it. But that's still... I've got to be. I don't have to be successful at anything. I don't have to be famous. I don't have to be rich. And that's where some of that good old gospel preaching uh, is is right. Uh, I don't have to get so many people saved or spend so many hours in prayer, whatever it might be. Uh, I don't have any other goal uh, than today to be the Brendan McCarthy-shaped, scented, colored version of God in this spot in this locality that is me and I have to say this by God that's an inspiring thing to do every morning because I know I'll not hit it (laughs) and I know it's I'm aiming at something that's got nothing to do with other people's appreciation of it or their statement of it or how successful I am or how good I am at doing all those other things that we work at. But since I think I've got all eternity to be doing that, I may as well get on with it now. And that to me is how I have moved from the idea of atonement to the idea of love. Because God is love. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. The end.